This episode of Why I Joined is brought to you by the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification USA. Their mission is to empower people through the worldview offered by the divine principle to create God-centered families. God's kingdom of love is a kingdom of heart. It's not a kingdom of the, the mind. Of course, we, we want to use our minds and we want to be creative, but the key point is how can we love and serve and how can we live for others? And that for me was the life-changing experience. Today we're joined by Mary Bezo Johnson, who served as a political officer in the U.S. Foreign Service for 22 years. Her work as a U.S. diplomat took her primarily through tours of service in Africa and Korea. A highlight of her career was organizing a conference to draw awareness of the human trafficking of women and children in Asia. She was a missionary in Africa for the Unification Movement from 1975 to 1991, which she joined at 23. From an interest in science and nature at a younger age, her work through the Unification Movement led to a shift in trying to address the world's issues from the mind to the heart. Mary has two children and four lovely grandchildren. I'm Sungmi Holdhus. Yay, I just got married. <laughs> you might know me as Orr. <laughs> and I'm Nancy Jeb. And this is why I joined. So thank you so much, Mary, for joining us today. We're so excited to have you. Um, yeah, uh, let's get started. This is uh, definitely a long time coming for our listeners. <laughs> I have to say, yes. So for our listeners, I also worked for the U.S. State Department for five years um, at the U.S. Embassy in London. So I'm super excited for this interview. Um, I, I loved working there. And so getting to interview you has been, um, yeah, I've been, I've been so excited to do this. Thank you for joining us. So Mary, what was your life trajectory when you met the unification movement? Um, so we mentioned a little bit in the intro that you're really interested in science and you had a shift during your missionary work, but what were your life plans? What was going on in your, your family life, your you know, career or your school? Well, I was in school, 1972 and 1973. I went to the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And when I was studying biology there, I thought my life trajectory was to go ahead and prepare for the, the med exam, the medical exam that lets you go into med school. Because a couple of my friends were doing that, and it seemed like that was the right thing to do. I even volunteered in a women's clinic in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to really understand more what doctors do. Somehow, in the early months of 1973, I had this feeling that I did not want to take that exam. It took a lot of study, obviously, to pass that exam. And I just was a strong feeling, and I didn't know why. And my friend said, well, what are you going to do then? I said, well, I don't know, but I just feel like more important than studying all those years to learn how to heal people's bodies, somehow I feel like I need to heal people's hearts or souls. But I didn't know what I was really leaning toward because I love biology and I was very much involved in studying biology. Anyway, I continued till the month of May of 1973. And then I, from, my, from University of Massachusetts, I got a summer job at Boston University. And it was in a lab that was studying genetics. And I was happy to get a summer job and it looked exciting. But when I went up to talk to the woman that was running the lab, I had always had in my heart this love for science because it was so amazing how the universe works, how nature is. And I had just always, although I didn't think of it always as God, I just thought that there must be some creative force. You know, this just didn't happen by accident. So I went up to talk to the professor who was running the lab and I tried to bring this up and she was like, no, everything's evolution. Everything's evolution. And she wouldn't even listen to me. Right. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense that everything's evolution because I knew enough science to know that random mutations <laughs> are usually fatal. So how could the whole world be created just that way? Then my colleague in this lab at Boston University he was completely into Jesus. I would talk to him about the creation and he would say, no, no, no. God created everything in six days. That's it. No discussion. So there I was, you know, I was searching for something, but I didn't know what. And in those days, there was no 
mobile phones. There was no, you know, ways to talk by text. But there were these big bulletin boards at Boston University and at all the schools with all these notes on it. I need a roommate. I, I'm right. I'm driving to Pittsburgh. I need someone to go with me. I still don't understand. But one day I was looking at one of those bulletin boards, maybe looking if anyone had a typewriter. I can't remember what I was looking for. I saw this very small sign. It said, can science and religion work together to make a better world? And out of all those notes of paper, my eyes went right there. And there was a, a little workshop that was going to happen that weekend at one of the, at a small room on Boston University campus. So I wrote it all down. And I also noted it was only a donation. I could give any donation I wanted to attend. So I thought I could afford that. And uh, that's how I actually ended up it was at the Newman Center at Boston University on a Saturday morning, a beautiful May morning. I ended up knocking on the door to find out if this is where the conference about science and religion was. And um, what happened is when I, I was welcomed there by a very nice gentleman, his name was Dr. Edwin Ong, and he was very kind and welcomed me. He never once said the workshop started 30 minutes ago, you're late, <laughs> but he just welcomed me in. And he began, well, first of all, he talked to me about what I was doing. And I explained to him, I was in this kind of situation. I was trying to, I didn't know if there was what God was or anything for sure. But I just knew that that something, you know, because of my study in science, there just had to be more than just saying everything happened by chance. So based on that, this wonderful gentleman, Dr. Ong, began to teach me something. He said, do you have about two hours? I said, I do, I do. He had a big whiteboard and he wrote at the top, the principle of creation. And I, I didn't realize at the time, but I was actually hearing the, the first chapter of what's called the divine principle. So as Dr. Ong was teaching this principle of creation, my heart just started opening up. And I was so amazed at what I was hearing, how he was explaining all the way nature Everything in nature is in pairs and everything he explained. I just started, I felt my spirit lightening up. Also, at one point, he put the yin yang symbol on this whiteboard, right? He was explaining about the masculine nature and the feminine nature in creation. Because Dr. Ong was from uh, Chinese, he's from Chinese, he's from Indonesia of Chinese descent. I had to interrupt him. I said, excuse me, is this your teaching? Is this what you're explaining to me? Is this what you developed? And I still remember he, he, he smiled very quietly. He said, no. And he reached up and there was some books on a bookshelf. And he took down the book and he opened it. And he showed me this beautiful picture of a Korean man, very nice uh, picture of a young man. He said, no, this is a revelation. This is a revelation from this man who is Reverend Sun Young Moon. And at that moment, I was so struck because as a scientist, I wasn't thinking of revelations. But somehow when he said that, I became very quiet and I just started listening closely and more and more closely. And I, I asked so many questions that morning that it went far beyond two hours. I actually ate lunch there and I stayed there till almost six o'clock at night asking question after question. And yet every question I asked was answered. And uh, that was began my journey. Um, I, I came back, um, I think over the next two weeks, I came back about every other day. And either Dr. Ong or someone teach me chapter by chapter, all parts of the divine principle. That's amazing, Mary. So you spent an entire day asking this Dr. Ong, this uh, you know Chinese man, all these questions and getting your answers met. Um, what happened after that day? So, <clears throat> what happened after that day is they, I that that was a workshop at Boston University, and um, the the unification movement, which we they called that at the time the unification family there in Boston. They had a small center in Alston. So I would go there on my bicycle about every other day and someone would teach me the next chapter. And it seemed like there were 
many, many chapters, but each one was very interesting, right? Talking about what, how evil entered the world that was called the fall of man. The mission of Jesus, it struck me very deeply when I heard that because I've been raised a Catholic and there was a lot of questions I had about Jesus that no one had ever tried to answer before. And so I just kept going every time. I tried to invite some of my friends to come, but they were all busy and I couldn't really explain to them why I was so excited about what I was hearing. So anyway, we reached the second part of the divine principle. It starts to explain about history. And through this history, we're looking at the, what the, was in the Bible, all the Old Testament stories, as they're called, and of course, the, history, the story of Jesus. And then it went on to start to explain that there are parallels between what happened in the time before Jesus and what happened in Christianity after Jesus, after Jesus had died and, and left this world, what happened in Christianity. And this also fascinated me. Um, because although my, I really love science, I'd always been interested in history too. And when I started to hear these, what they call these, how history kind of repeats, there's certain parallels between the years prior to Jesus and then Christianity. So I became more and more intrigued. But as the divine principle continued, I realized this is moving towards something. This is moving toward a conclusion. I could feel that. And sure enough, what I was learning is that, and this is, I guess, was the really eye-opening part of me, is that the way God was preparing the world for what Christianity calls the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, or whatever, was actually through history itself. And that the, the return would be coming not through some phenomena that would come out of the sky, but actually through history, God would be sending someone into this world to continue the mission of Jesus. Because Jesus had come to make a world of peace and a world of a kingdom of God. He always talked about that. But we know after he left this earth, actually the world got worse if you look at history. So in any case, as we were moving towards this conclusion, um, I, I was told that there'd be one more chapter and I I wanted to hear that. I wanted to hear what this conclusion would be, right? And I was thinking that, mm -hmm, so maybe they're going to say that this is the plan of history, and in the future, God will send someone to this world that will be taking up Jesus's mission. And one important part of the divine principle I really liked is that the idea was that we, who are living on the earth, would work together with whomever God would send. We work together to build God's kingdom that we have a responsibility, those of us that are here now. And this appealed to me, you know, as a young person, of course, 23, year old, 23 years old, I want to do something to make the world better. So as I moved towards this conclusion, thinking this will be something happening in the future, the last part, they explained all these parallels of history and they added up the years, looking at how many years before Jesus, the time of Jesus and going up till now. And all of a sudden, they were explaining that this means that sometime between maybe 1917, 1920, the person that God was sending would return. And I looked, I said, you mean he's already here? And that surprised me so much. It, went, it wasn't expecting it at all, right? I was ready to hear that maybe God would be sending someone to guide the world, you know, towards the world of peace. So after I heard that conclusion... I was sort of taken back. I was shocked. <laughs> and I remember I left the center in Austin. I went home. And I didn't want to have anything more to do with the unification movement. Because if this were true, then something in my life would have to change. And I was not ready at that point. Deep in my heart, I wasn't ready for that. What did I do? Again, this was not the time of cell phones. So I just simply, in my apartment, I took the telephone off the hook. I took it off the hook. I didn't want the people I'd met, you know, even though they had such an interesting, they were explaining the divine principle and it sounded so good. When I heard this conclusion, 
that this was the time, not in the future, that we needed to come together and work together with God and start to make the world that we all desire. It was almost too much for me, right? So I took the phone off the hook. I thought, I'm just going to forget everything I heard. But I couldn't, right? I, I went back to my job. I rode my bike to my job every day, but I kept thinking about it. And I still remember there was this moment. I was doing the dishes. I think it was a Sunday night. I was doing the dishes. And it just came to me that when I was a little girl, I used to always think, if I was alive in the time of Jesus, I wouldn't have been, you know, throwing rocks at him or I would have been with him. I wouldn't have been like Peter saying that I didn't know him at all. No, I would have been right there speaking up for him. I would have been in the front row. I always thought of that when I was a young girl. And so I remember that night I was washing the dishes and it was like, if this is true, you've got to find out if it's true. You've got to go back to that center and listen again and talk to them again and try to understand. So that's what I did. The next day I picked up the phone, I called. And what was really funny, it had already been like two weeks. And uh, when I called the person who answered, they didn't even remember who I was because <laughs> there was a lot of people coming and hearing the divine principle and coming to workshops who never came back, right? But finally they remembered who I was and they said, okay, we just want to talk to you. We want to be sure, they wanted to be really sure that I was serious, right? That I wasn't just maybe looking for a place to live or something like this. I said, no, no, I'll come, I'll come. And so I came there and I talked again to Dr. Ong and to a couple of, and to his wife. And I really sh shared with them my heart that it had taken me a long time to realize that I really want to find out if this divine principle is the truth and the way to do it is that I wanted to join the center and to work with the unification movement. So that was in July, July of 1973. And uh, yeah, that's how I actually joined. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds yeah. like, I think um, for a lot of people who are unfamiliar with our, our movement, um, it's hard to understand how we could come to follow you know, our founders. Um, mm -hmm. But it sounds to me that like your experience of this was really that there was some very clear logic. I mean, you were studying science at university and medicine. And, you know, I think it's so fascinating that, you know, as you were hearing that there is there is structure and science in the way that God worked to kind of lead people to a point where we can really uh, start to make a difference together and to connect with the heart of that also so mm -hmm. yeah thank you for sharing that I, I loved I loved hearing all about it <laughs> so you said you you joined the center you you moved in and were yes. officially part of the movement what kind yes. of conversations were you having with other members yes well um at that time um there was three Americans there was two Austrians and the rest of the members were Japanese. They didn't speak English very well. But the conversations I had with the Americans, uh, two of whom had been with the movement for a while, they were sharing how they got such joy from going out and talking to other people and having people come to the workshops and have experiences like I did, right? Um, and I listened because I'd never done something like that in my life where I would actually go out and invite other people to come, right? So I was a little shy at first, but I started to do that. We go to the Boston Common, we go to universities, and we just reach out to people and, and, and start to talk to them. I also went to a full workshop, which was seven days. That was in New York um, State. We all went down there by van. And at that workshop could talk to a lot of other people about how they had been inspired um, like myself, to really want to know more about the divine principle. And um, I began to feel even more deeply than when I first realized that God had been working through many people in many different ways. And we'd all been moved by different things. Like I was moved by the science and then by the history. Other people were moved by hearing about Jesus's life. But somehow we all came to the same heart, right? where we wanted to work together 
as I said, we called ourselves the unified family. We wanted to work together to build this, this world of um, peace, this world of harmony. We had wonderful songs we'd sing, uh, very special songs that really brought us closer together. And yeah, I think that was what I, I realized, mostly conversations I had with others. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, um... Did you face any difficulties in making that decision to uh, to to join in with this group of people on campus? Um, I know sometimes it's a difficult decision for people to understand. Um, so did you face any kind of opposition or, or struggles with that? Well, it's interesting because one of my very, very good friends, she was... Um, she was dating a man and they were planning to get married and, and he was a very strong socialist. Actually, he was a communist. And, and in that, in Boston at that time, there was everything, socialist, communist. And so when I went to try to talk to her and share my heart with her, she absolutely did not want to hear anything because, it, because what I was saying was centered on God, everything, like working with God, right, to make this better world. So that was painful. She didn't oppose me, but it was painful because our friendship just grew apart, right? And um, then there were a few other friends who I wasn't quite as close to, but they also were wondering. They just wondered because a couple of times they saw me out on the Boston Common talking to people and they were wondering what I was doing, but they didn't oppose it. My family also, they didn't oppose. I was supposed to go on a family vacation with them at the end of that summer. I did disappoint them because I called them up and said, I, I don't think I can join you for the vacation. It was out in Indiana and um, we were going to go to Arizona, I think, to see the Grand Canyon. So that kind of hurt them. But later that year, I went home for Christmas and I explained to them much more about this uh, new movement that I was involved in. So no, there wasn't any real opposition. I guess, yeah, but just particularly a couple of friendships got more distant, but that was all. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's nice to hear that you didn't have to yeah. um, face too much difficulty. <laughs> yeah, that was good. You didn't that have people, to give up your yeah. whole world, you know, to. Yes. No. And that people could be supportive, even though they might not fully understand uh, with the same level of knowledge, but um, mm -hmm. that they could still be supportive of your journey yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. Of course, that was 1973. So many people were going on so many different journeys, you know, not just Boston, but all through America. Yeah, people were looking for different. There were so many groups then. So you mentioned um, Reverend Moon. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, did you have a relationship with them? Did you meet them? Um, you know, there's a lot of opinions and um Definitely, you know, like we we're saying, sometimes it can be difficult to understand why you would follow this Korean man, older Korean man, and this new philosophy. Um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Reverend and Mrs. Moon? Yes, yes. Uh, so actually, in addition to um, the divine principle, uh, which was that I said it was in a book, very organized we would read, and when I joined the center, every morning we would do readings, we'd say prayer, and then we'd do a reading, which was the speeches that Reverend Moon had given, um, primarily since he came to America. He came to America, I think in 1971, and this was 1973. And um, there was an estate down in New York called Belvedere. It's a beautiful place on the Hudson River. And there was a, a center there where every Sunday, um, Reverend Moon, whom we affectionately call Father Moon, would speak. His wife was always there, Dr. Han Moon, whom we call Mother Moon. And sometimes we'd have an opportunity to go down on Sunday from Boston down to Terrytown, New York. And I could listen to him speak in person. Uh, we, we, he would speak, we would sit on the floor. We would sit on the floor Korean style. That was new for us, right? And most Americans, our legs got pretty tired, but we learned to do that. And I think what moved my heart so much beyond the divine principle was really listening and watching how he poured out his heart with so much love and so much caring. And he would usually speak for about an hour. This is a Sunday morning, maybe two hours. Now he was speaking in Korean with a translator, right? 
And I know even when I was joining, a lot of people would be like, how can you follow or go to the speeches of someone who doesn't even speak English? But it was amazing how he and his translator would become almost one. And we could really understand. And he was just pouring out so much about God's love and particularly how, how much God's heart was broken when Adam and Eve fell, when Adam and Eve went away from God and disobeyed God. And that God's heart has been longing to bring us all back, back to the way we were supposed to be living in love and harmony, right? And again, as a young person, deeply inspired me. In addition, I had a personal chance to uh, be with Father Moon and Mother Moon. They came to Boston in October of 1973 when I was just a fairly new member of our movement. And um, they spoke for three nights and they stayed right at our center. They stayed in the center. They didn't stay at a hotel. And uh, Dr. Ong, whom I mentioned was the one who introduced me to Divine Principle, he and his wife were the, what we call the center leaders. You know, they were our, you know, counselors and kind of guiding us. And I had the amazing opportunity that Mrs. Ong asked me if I could, um, if I could help in the kitchen and just be able to serve the meals to Father Moon and Mother Moon while they were staying there. And I was, I was very honored to do that, right? Um, and then when they came to Boston, I was able just to serve them, uh, you know, to ask them, would you like more coffee? Would you like more tea? Um, they would answer me in English. At that time, uh, Father Moon and Mother Moon didn't speak a lot of English, but they understood English and they could answer. And it just was an amazing experience to feel like family. But the day that particularly stood out, because that was three days, is when Dr. Ong's young son, he was two years old, he was two years old, he just ran into the dining room, you know, two-year-olds do that. And um, Father Moon was just, so, and Mother Moon were so happy to see him because they had come to America and they had left all their children back in Korea. Their children were waiting just to get their U.S. visas finalized. So their children weren't with them. And this again is October, 1973. And I still remember just the joy on their faces to see this little boy, father put him on his lap. Um, you know, I took some pictures. It was just, it was just an amazing, loving family feeling. And uh, I, I feel so blessed and so honored that I could have that experience. That sounds incredible. So you mentioned um, that you went out as a missionary for the education mm -hmm. movement in 1975. Yes. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Like, did you volunteer? Were you assigned? And what was your time like as a missionary? Mm -hmm. Well, unlike my taking two weeks to even decide, am I going to find out if this divine principle and unification movement are really true? something I want to give my life to. In 1975, in the month of February, I'd been asked to witness, again, witness meaning going out and just inviting people to come to a divine principle workshop by, by talking to them, finding out what they're into and are they thinking about spiritual things or not? Or like myself, are they interested in science and maybe a way science and religion can work together? And my assignment at that time was Harvard University. In other words, our center leaders sent us all to different universities. So I was asked to go to Harvard. <laughs> and I'd been there for about three weeks, not having an easy time, because when I would sit down and talk to the Harvard students, they would be liking to a lot of philosophy, and some people weren't interested at all. And Anyway, it wasn't easy to find someone who might be interested in coming to a divine principle workshop. So I would pray and I'd go out every day and I'd try my best, but it wasn't easy at all. So one evening I called back to the center, again, using a payphone. there was no mobile phone. And I said, I'm gonna be a little late coming home on the T on the subway, but I'll be there. And um, uh, the, he wasn't the center director. He was one of the brothers that was working in the New England area, right? And he said, um, someone said, he would like to talk to you. Mike would like to talk to you, Mike Smith. I said, sure. And he picked up the phone. He said, Mary, Father Moon, Mother Moon, they're sending missionaries out 
And most of the missionaries they're sending out are um, couples in our movement that are already blessed and married. But there's a few countries where we don't yet have any missionaries. He said, your name is Bizot. Is that a French name? I said, yes, it is a French name. So, well, there's a small country in Africa called Central Africa, and they speak French. Would you like to go there as a missionary? Straight asked me. And without almost no hesitation, maybe five seconds, I waited. I said, yes. I asked him again. I said, so what's the name of the country? He said, it's called the Central African Republic. And I thought I knew a lot, you know, knew a little bit about the world, but I had never heard of that country. I still remember I hung up the phone. It was in the Harvard Library, Harvard University Library. I walked down the steps and I looked up at the sky and there was a moon, a full moon above Harvard University. And I just, I said a prayer. I said, God, is that same moon the moon that shines in Africa? <laughs> that was my heart. I have it was amazing. I just felt at that moment that I needed to say yes, that somehow there was a time in my life now when I needed to go beyond Boston, beyond Cambridge, beyond. And um, that was actually pretty amazing to me <laughs> that I said yes, but I did. We then went to a training down uh, at what is now called the Unification Theological Seminary. It's part of our unification movement. It's um, it's in New York also, closer to Kingston, New York. I went down there for a training for about um, three months. And it was during that time I could do more research about the Central African Republic. And um, actually what I found out about it, to be very honest with you, made me a little bit afraid because at that time the Central African Republic, which is a landlocked country right in the middle of Africa, if you look at Africa, it would be like the bullseye, the exact middle of Africa, was being ruled by a dictator who'd been in there for many years. His name was John Padel Bokassa. And when I read about all this, I was like, oh dear, what have I said yes to? <laughs> but another part of me was very much filled with the, the, the desire, if I should say, to go out and uh, to bring this divine principle to other countries, because all the countries you were going to, there had never been a missionary there who had taught or taught about the divine principle or about this new movement, the unification movement. And um, so we were going out as one person from America and one person from Germany and one person from Japan. So there would be three of us going to each country. So I was in that training for three months and through a lot of prayer, and we did a lot of study and practice teaching of divine principle. And also at that time, Father Moon and Mother Moon would come about once a week to speak to us. They come up from where they were living in Terrytown, New York, to speak to us and encourage us, right? And what I remember from that time is Father Moon saying that we should go to our mission countries with the heart of Jesus and just walk every path of that country with the same heart that Jesus walked the paths of Israel. In other words, Jesus wanted to bring to all the people of Israel God's truth and, and that the kingdom of God is coming, kingdom of God is coming through God's love and God's truth. And so Father Moon asked us to go to our mission countries with, um, with that heart. And uh, yeah, so I did. We left for our mission countries in May, 1975. And I stayed in Central Africa until uh, January of 1983 as a missionary. Mm -hmm. Well, what was your experience um, working with the Central African people and, you know, witnessing and, you know, what was that yeah, like for you? Especially, especially in a nation uh, ruled by a dictator at that time, that must have mm -hmm. been such an interesting experience. It wasn't easy, I'll be honest. Biggest problem was the language. Yes, I had French ancestors. My father's last name was Bizo. I studied French in high school, so I thought I could speak a little French. When I got to Central Africa, I had the experience of trying to speak, no one can understand you. 
And that heart was so difficult, right? The, uh, Jap the German missionary who came did speak a little French and the Japanese brother who came didn't speak any French or any English, <laughs> but that was okay because I really wanted to speak French. I thought I could, and that was the most frustrating thing. Uh, I did finally get tutoring by a very lovely nun, a French nun who'd spent her whole life in Central Africa. She was at least in her 80s. She was going to spend her whole life there, a missionary. She taught me one-on-one, -on -one, and I began to break through and to speak French. Once I could speak French well enough, I really, really wanted to go out and do the same work I've been doing in the U.S., you know, to talk to people. And I thought it would be difficult, but I was so surprised. Once I could speak enough French, the Central Africans were very happy to come to our center. We have a small center. Um, they were happy to come and they were happy to listen to the divine principle. I taught the divine principle in French. How did I do it? I had a French translation of the divine principle and I would just read it at first, just read it. And I was amazed, they understood. But still, even though many came and they listened, no one really wanted to, to join. And what we were hoping is that we could create a center and create a movement there in Central Africa, right? So people would come and they would listen, sometimes for one day or a three-day workshop, and they would go home. And we couldn't, I prayed so much and I talked with my Japanese brother and my, um, the, my the sister from Germany, what, what can we do? How can we how can we uh, how can we actually get people to understand deeply and to join our movement? I guess that's kind of my nature. I like to see you know progress forward. They kept saying it takes time, it takes patience, especially my sister from Germany. She grew up on a farm and she would tell me, you know, you have to plant the seeds, Mary, and they take time to grow before they they can become fruit, before the tomatoes and the cucumbers and everything can can come fruit and I can have a harvest. So I think I learned patience, but I also learned by going through all these, actually it took about three years before we really had anyone who wanted to join us and work together with us. I also learned something that was probably the most life-changing part because as I mentioned to you, I was very interested in science I've been working at Harvard, you know, trying to reach out to people. And I realized in Central Africa where the average young man might finish elementary school or middle school, many of the young women didn't even go to elementary school. They were just expected to learn to be a good wife and mother. And very few people went to the university. But by all the um, pouring out of sharing and love, and trying to explain the divine principle to the Central Africans, I began to realize that God's kingdom of love is a kingdom of heart. It's not a kingdom, it's not the kingdom of the, the mind. It's, of course, we, we want to use our minds and we want to be creative, but the key point is how can we love and serve and how can we live for others? And that for me was the life-changing experience. I often say that I feel like Central Africa gave me much more than I gave to Central Africa. Even though after a few years, we did have members that start to join and um, it was good. And then after five years, we even had an amazing experience where Father Moon and Mother Moon sent one of the leaders from Korea and they looked into a possibility of us starting a small school in Central Africa um, to, to educate uh, young men in particular who were not able to finish maybe more than elementary school, to educate them in different trades, trades like carpentry and masonry and plumbing and things like this. And so at that time, uh, the uh, government changed. The same time that we were trying to get this idea going, there was a change in government. And this dictator, he was overthrown. If you look at history, overthrown by the French army. <laughs> and another person came in as the president who was a Christian man and he was open to our idea. 
So amazingly enough, starting out so slowly the first three years, by about the fifth year, we were able to start this project, right? And it was called FarmApp. And it had, we had a big vision and a big plan. And we had about 150 young men that signed up for it. And we were working with this, this new government to try to make this happen. So it was all very wonderful. But then a huge disappointment came because, and this again is history, at that time, Francois Mitterrand was the president of France and he was socialist. And his son came to visit Central Africa. And someone in the Ministry of Youth told him about this project. And he went to see the project. But he found that the project was being, you know, behind it was Father Moon and Mother Moon. And the son of Francois Mitterrand did not like that, right? At that time, Father Moon and Mother Moon and our movement were, were being very persecuted in France. And so unfortunately, because of that, after only about 11 months of this project, um, we were asked to close it down. The Central African government said we had to close it down. And I tell you, that was such a difficult time. Very, very, very difficult. We, we did it, but it was, you know, heartbreaking. Exactly. So anyway. Then, because even though we shut down our project, as the government said, right, there were some people saying that we weren't, we, you know, we were not really shutting it down. We were just going to do it secretly. It was all not true. But as the result of that, the government came and they arrested all of the missionaries. They arrested us all. And after two oh weeks, we were, deported. we were deported from the Central African Republic. And um, that happened in January 1983. And that was very, very difficult, right? Because you know we were pouring out our heart. We wanted these young men to have this opportunity. And then everything took a, a different course. But that being said, um, we were able, by that time I was married uh, to a, a man, a brother from New York. And he had come to join me in um in Central Africa. And so we, we were all deported, but we were able to continue our mission in Nigeria. And we did that. We continued in Nigeria. And then later we continued in the country of Chad. So that's why we, we were able to work as missionaries all the way up to 1991. So um, that was a very, very uh, difficult time of my life, even my life of faith, because I thought we poured out everything. And yet, it could get stopped so suddenly because of one man, specifically <laughs> the son of uh, Francois Mitterrand. But in any case, we went on. And um, many years later, when I was working in the State Department, I was assigned to Cameroon, which is the neighboring country to the Central African Republic. And by whatever, I was asked to go to the Central African Republic on a short mission there to help out on some issues about the visa section, the, cons the visa section. And I was able to visit Central Africa one more time. I could, our, our members were still there. They continued on, even though the missionaries had left. And so I was able to meet with them and we could see each other again and we could pray together. And so somehow I could, I could have my heart soothed, even though uh, we had had to leave Central Africa in such a difficult way. Wow, that's powerful that you were able to have some closure. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to know, I mean, in the face of all of that, like, extreme disappointment, I mean, like, I, it, it must have been so heart wrenching for you to go through. What, what was it that kind of, um, that kept you going? Or I guess, uh, in another, uh, another way to phrase it, um, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. So I love to understand what it is that helps people be resilient in the face of such difficulty. Um, yeah, I'd love to know. Yeah, I, I think about that moment. I was so extremely, you know, when we had, when we were deported from Central Africa, I felt I was like cut off from my children. Um, my husband was very supportive then. We were together. He, 
he said, it might be all right. You know, you have to look at the long term. Uh, things might turn out all right in the long term. But honestly speaking, um, it was quite difficult. His support was very important. And um, our, our, we were just asking in Nigeria just to, we went up to Northern Nigeria to the city of Kano and to kind of start over again there, which we did. We tried to do the same thing we did in Central Africa, but it, it did take a few years, right? Before I could feel confident. I guess that's the word I'm looking for, right? Confident. And then later we were asked to go to Chad, which is a neighboring country to Nigeria. It's just north of the Central African Republic. And um, I suppose what kept me going through all of that time is that um, understanding that God had gone through this too, right? There have been many times in the history where God had been extremely disappointed. Maybe even oh, one of them was really when interesting. Moses <laughs> smashed the Ten Commandments, if you know that story. The first time he came down from the mountain, the people were dancing and singing, and he just smashed the Ten Commandments. But then he went mm -hmm. back up and he tried again. Um, I think that's what might have held me together, yeah. But it was a difficult time. You mentioned uh, you mentioned about like the disappointment of God, and I think um, there are a lot of religious perspectives that come with uh, the concept of God as being omnipotent and omniscient, and um, you know that everything is happening the way that it's supposed to, in a sense. So. Mm -hmm. Where where did you learn about this concept of like um, a God who is disappointed or a God who grieves? Um, and, and what was that like for you? How did it feel to to learn about that perspective, which which may have been very different? Mm -hmm. I think that's what appealed to me in the beginning, back in 1973, when I was studying the divine principle. The divine principle explains that. You, we as women and men, we have a responsibility that when God created us, he created us with this responsibility to grow and to mature, right? And that that's actually a wonderful gift from God because as we grow and as we mature, we can understand more about God's heart and God's own perspective. And that's exactly what he gave that to Adam and Eve. He gave them a responsibility. The Bible puts it as like a commandment, but that was their responsibility and they didn't do it. So somehow I realized through my, through studying, but more, more through, through my experience as a missionary, that even when it's difficult, if I try my best, that's my responsibility, right? Is to try my best. And yet if you look at what happens in, in all of human history is that the people that God asked to try their best, some of them succeeded, some of them didn't. And I, I just used Moses as an example because he, he apparently was a very stubborn man and, you know, 40 days he fasted, he came down the mountain, he got upset and he sent commandments, he threw him down, but then he went back up again. So he was an example of someone that was very loyal to God, but then I guess through my experiences, I realized that God needs people, you know, like that. He needs people. I mean, of course, Jesus came and Jesus showed us the way to live. But Jesus also extremely loyal to God. He said, your will be done. You know, as difficult as it was to go the way of the cross, he always said God's will be done. So I guess that's something that um, I really realized both by studying, but mostly by experience that God needs us and we need God. It's really a partnership. And I do know that, uh, yeah, some people in different religions don't think that. They think that God can do everything no matter what people do. But I really believe that we do have a part of responsibility. Yeah, that's a powerful perspective. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that God needs us. <laughs> mm -hmm. That it's not just God giving us grace or... Um, you know, has a plan for us, but we have to fulfill it, you know, just 
I mean, you're a mother of two children, now four grandchildren. I'm sure you had many experiences where you had to let your kids learn a lesson or, you know, come to their own conclusions and make their decisions. Could you talk, I'd like to go a little bit into raising a family. And um, again, if you, you can always um, let us know, you know, if you don't want to answer a question or like us Mm -hmm. to move on, but um, you're, you know, you were married and had two kids and that marriage ended. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, in our faith community, you know, we're taught that when you get married, you get blessed in marriage, that that marriage is eternal. And I'm curious what that was like for you, um, maybe reconciling that or what would it was like in our faith community. Um, yeah, if you, if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So um, it was a combination of, uh, so my former husband and I, we worked together very well when we were in Africa, even through all those disappointments, right? But um, it's interesting, I mentioned that um, after Nigeria, we went as missionaries to Chad. And once again, we had to leave that country very quickly. This time, Mm -hmm. not because we were deported, but there was a coup d'etat, a change of government fighting in the capital city of N'Djamena where we lived. And we were asked to leave. They wanted all Americans, foreigners, everybody to leave. And that was in 1991. So that was how we kind of abruptly ended our missionary work. And Mm -hmm. we ended up back in the United States very, very abruptly. And uh, that then began a period of in our marriage where things got very difficult. And we tried to resolve things. But at that time, we had two children. Our daughter was three and a half and our son was one and a half. And we tried everything, you know, everything we knew and we we tried everything, the counseling and it just, it got so difficult, right? And so we separated for quite a while. But, you know, I always had the hope that we could restore our, our marriage and our blessing. That was always my hope um, because we are a movement of, um, yes, when we are blessed in marriage, I was, we were blessed in marriage in 1982. We take it, we take a promise that it is for eternity and, and not just to death do us part, right? And yeah. we take that, we make a vow that we will do this and no matter what, we will take responsibility. Though so through all those years, it was extremely, extremely difficult. Um, we tried and tried and, you know, sometimes even now I can look back and say, well, if things, you know, I, I look back at myself, you know, if I had done this differently or if I had not said that or if I had agreed to do this, you can always go back. But in the end, we realized that we were too, um, you know, we couldn't reconcile it. And um, so that was about four, four years ago, right, that we officially divorced. But um, it was hard. I have to be honest with you. We, we are a mm-hmm. movement of couples and families, and um, it's not easy. Um, but I still know that that there, there's hope for everyone. Uh, actually, now, currently, when I go out talking to people about divine principle, I meet many uh, people, both men and women, who are divorced, and therefore I'm able to like share my heart with them, I think, or listen to their heart, I think is a better way to put it, because I understand what they've been through. But it's, it's not easy because our movement's definitely a movement centered on couples and family and, and making that commitment for eternity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, you know, my current husband and I both come from, from divorce and separation. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a father of three kids. And, you know, there was definitely a time for both of us where we had to, you know, the literal name of our movement is the family federation and where do we fit in into that family? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really a test of your faith and your, your strength of heart. And um, but I think for both of us, it opened up our hearts a lot more, mm-hmm. you know, to other people. I, I can mm-hmm. say for myself being a, a young, um, naive person, you know, at 18, 19, that 
it was very limited to, you know, how um, you think of everything as black and white, but, you know, actually through, there's a quote by uh, Father Moon that says, unhappiness and struggle don't necessarily lead to unhappiness and struggle. And Except yeah, that when you're in the when you're in the middle of it, that's <laughs> when you're in the middle of it. I, 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 no, I can say that with all you're right, yeah. but when you're in the middle of it, that's absolutely good. it. It mm-hmm. feels impossible, mm-hmm. and um, but one beautiful thing about our movement actually is how much it's grown. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from hearing these stories and how embracing we can be with all our different mm-hmm. uh, families and situations and. Um, blended <laughs> blended families yeah. yeah and as you mentioned the path of what we sometimes call the re-blessing in other words person that was blessed and yeah it's a beautiful path and uh, i know many people are walking that path of beautiful path yeah so there's yeah. always hope and um and of course you know we will always uh, even with my former husband we always share our children and our grandchildren so that will be there <laughs> mm. I, I would like to ask, um, going back to your mission, missionary work and, um, you know, you, you traveled a lot and had so many experiences. Um, how did that segue into your career change to becoming a U.S. diplomat? I mean, like such a, like two different, very different worlds. I mean, you co- like a religious you know, a career and then suddenly like a career in government. Um, what was that like and how did that kind of come to be? That's a good question. It was a very clear segue. I told you we had to leave Chad and Jenna Chad abruptly. We were evacuated by the U.S. State Department and they asked us to leave. We didn't have to, but they wanted to protect us. There, there was fighting in the city and they wanted all we were there as missionaries. We were registered at the embassy. They knew we were there. So they said, please leave. Well, as we were leaving, <laughs> Chad, I noticed that all the State Department people were, quote, being taken care of. I mean, their houses were going to be protected. Their, uh, the things they owned were going to be sent back to the U.S., all protected by the State Department. Where we were living, we were living with other members, so they protected our things, but we actually just had, we were allowed to take two suitcases. We had two small children, my husband and I, two small children, two suitcases, left the country. And I was observing all this. And I'm like, if we go back overseas, wouldn't it be better to be sort of under an umbrella, a protection, like of the State Department or maybe the USAID, US Agency for International Development. So by watching this, as we left Chad, the country of Chad, I went back to the United States and I talked to a few people who also had had to leave, but they worked with the State Department. I said, well, how do we, how do we get into the State Department? They <laughs> said, so you have to take an exam. So just a few months after we came back, so abruptly, my husband and I both took this exam, not online like it is now, it was a written exam in 1992. We took the exam and I passed it. And I think I passed it because I had lived overseas a long time and I knew a lot about the world and geography and different, you know, countries because I'd been in Africa a long time. And so I passed that. I've always been pretty good in English. So I passed that part. And still, I was amazed that I passed this exam because, um, you know, at that time I had I had not quite finished college when I joined our movement, you know, so I was only like two thirds of the way through college. But that didn't matter because it's interesting to join the State Department. All that's required is a high school diploma. A lot of people don't know that. So anyway, I could enter and I passed the exam. I passed what they call the oral exam, which is a whole series of questions, very a whole day long of questions. And again, although it wasn't said I felt that because of my experience overseas and the fact I'd actually been living in countries like Central African Republic and Chad, that somehow uh, the State Department, they wanted me, but I was surprised. Of course, by that time I could speak French fluently. So that was a plus. So yeah, in 1990, um, let's see, that was 1993, no, 1993, yeah. I was actually hired by the State Department. And then my first assignment was in Seoul 
1994. Mm -hmm. So I do feel that uh, it was that segue was really because of watching that a feeling that if we're going overseas again, we need some kind of umbrella, especially having two small children. Yeah. So that's why I moved forward to try to join the State Department. Yes. And were there any similarities you would say in the experiences as a missionary and, and working um, for state? Because, I mean, I know for me personally, when I, um, you know, I wasn't a diplomat, I only joined as a local employee, <laughs> but I really observed this kind of, it felt more like a community. It wasn't like a business. It wasn't like a company. It was very much built around this ethos of, um, serving people, um, mm -hmm. whether that be, you know, through issuing visas or serving the expat American community or tourists, um, you know, American mm -hmm. tourists coming. And, and I think that really connected with me, you know, mm -hmm. like working there and I, I could, um, yeah. So I'm curious, like, what were your observations? Were there any similarities or like really glaring differences between the two career paths? No, there were a lot of similarities. Um, you know, our, our movement, um, of course, we have Father Moon and Mother Moon, and they are, you know, they're directing the whole, uh, all the, how call it, the long-term vision of our movement. And then we have, you know, we have, we have leaders at different levels, pastors and what we call sometimes regional directors. And as a movement, we tend to unite with and go forward with this large vision. And it's very much the same in the State Department. State Department's vision is how to carry out U.S. foreign policy. And then at any embassy, it's the ambassador, right, who's taking that forward. And then each of us has our, our position. And uh, I realized that's very, I, I kind of, by being in the unification movement, I was prepared very much so to work in the State Department, right? I actually found sometimes younger people joining right after graduate school, I mean, being, you know, joining the State Department, they had a harder time with that. They had a harder time with that, that you were kind of all following this vision, maybe set largely by the ambassador for a given country, and then moving forward as a, a team. And uh, so I realized that as a member of the unification movement, since I was 23, I was prepared for that pretty well. And then what you said also, the serving, we are definitely there to serve. Number one reason, I mean, why was there an embassy in the Central African Republic or in Tonga or wherever? It's to serve American citizens who are traveling mm. and also to uh, try to move forward our policies of trade and things like that. So it's just a serving position all around. And I think you, you picked on, up on that. And it really is. So I think it actually is a good preparation. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, do you have a favorite memory of your work as a diplomat? Well, uh, I, I, as you mentioned in the introduction, one of the moments that I felt really like I, I could be contributing to moving forward the policy was when we organized and I was the spearheaded, spearhead, is that the word? Once my office at State Department got the funding from Congress to organize a conference that took place in uh, the Philippines, in Manila in 2000, about the problem of the trafficking of women and children in Asia. And this was a huge problem that a lot of the world hadn't realized. So I was working on that for almost a year and to really see that come to fruition and to see that there was follow-on activities from that. It wasn't just the conference itself. That was some, that was a deep uh, highlight, you know, in terms of my career um, but also I could say that I have beautiful memories of when I was serving in East Africa, in Tanzania. That's a beautiful country on the Indian Ocean. And uh, at that time, my, my uh, political beat, as you would call it, <laughs> I was in charge of reporting on Zanzibar. Zanzibar is part of Tanzania, and it's an amazing little, it's an island. It has its own political history, its own political um, atmosphere and I had such enjoyable experiences of doing that work which I did for about three years while I was in Tanzania. So those were probably two of the highlights of my career as a diplomat. Wow what a rich life experience you've had. 
pretty amazing. As I, as I've heard, you know, as you've been sharing with us about your experience, like meeting the movement and, uh, and everything and, you know, and your realizations, you, you touched on like that God is not just a God of logic, but a God of heart and, and it's the experience. And, um, and it reminded me of this quote, um, by the neuroscientist, uh, Jill Bolt Taylor, where she said, uh, most of us think of ourselves as thinking creatures that feel, but we're actually feeling creatures that think. Yes. And um, I, I guess my question is, um, if there's one theme to um, your this to the the spiritual journey that you have walked um, in your lifetime, what would that theme be? I think you're pretty much summarizing for me um, before I met the unification movement, I really was that thinking person trying to figure out the world and was it evolution? Was it not evolution? How did the world come to be? And always from that logical point of view, but through living the teachings of the divine principle, of course, first studying and saying, Oh, this is truth, this is logical. There must be some parallels in history. So this, yeah, this is God's time again to try to bring the kingdom of God to earth. But by living the teachings of the divine principle, meaning living for others, right? This is how I really realized that I have now grown to have a deep relationship with God. Of, I, like I trust God. And it probably does have to do a lot with the disappointments in Africa and the fact that, you know, my my marriage and blessing did not move forward as I'd hoped, that I've developed this deep artistic connection to God, a trust in God, that truly God himself, herself, because I believe God is a heavenly parent, our father and our mother. So our heavenly parent, God, really wants not just me, but every person, you know, to be embraced in love. And this is something I feel deeply in my heart. I have to be honest, being a grandmother just lets this blossom, right? As we, I take care of my grandchildren, both as infants, and now the two oldest are six and seven years old. And it's like, oh, that's wonderful. as this blossoms, mm. this is what I've gained, this deep in my own heart, trusting God, believing that the external difficulties are inevitable, but the ultimate will be that we will all be embraced in, in our heavenly parents' love and God's love. Oh, thank you so much. That's like the perfect end quote, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just want to thank you so much, Mary, for, for joining us, for sharing your story, um, for everything you've given to, you know, to our movement, but also in your work um, in the Foreign Service. And we, we wish you many, many more years of experiencing um, God's heart, our Heavenly Parent's heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of Why I Joined. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested to learn more about the Divine Principle Worldview, you can visit our website at www.familyfed.org. Thank you.